2: This is Bloomberg Law.
0: A divided Supreme Court rejects a religious challenge. Tell us a little about the facts of the case.
2: Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts.
0: My guest is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Carule. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin.
2: And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines.
0: The Supreme Court takes on state secrets. Multiple lawsuits were filed against the emergency rule. Is this lawsuit for real?
2: Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg
3: Radio.
4: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Greg Storr.
5: And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. Coming up on the show, we talk with Georgetown University Law Professor Josh Chopitz about Senator Lindsey Graham's fight to avoid testifying before a Georgia grand jury. And Georgia State University Law Professor Eric Segal will join us to talk about who could challenge President Biden's new student loan forgiveness
4: package. But first, rich Americans are hiding vast sums from the IRS by exploiting a loophole in a federal law designed to crack down on offshore tax evasion. That's according to a new Senate report. With us to discuss the issue is Bloomberg News reporter Neil Weinberg. Neil, thanks for being on with us. In a nutshell, how does this loophole work?
3: Basically what happens is, according to the report, rich Americans are putting a lot of money overseas in partnerships, and then there is a requirement that these partnerships uh, be reported or investigated by foreign banks to see if it's Americans who are parking money overseas but there is a way that they can register them essentially as offshore banks. And it's a very simple process, and they are then uh, given a number called a Global Intermediary Identification Number, and this absolves the banks where they put their money of having to investigate whether they're tax-dodging Americans.
5: Can you give us a sense of how widely this
3: loophole is being used? There aren't clear numbers on exactly how much money is involved. But the report points out that eight jurisdictions it looked at, uh, and these are places like the Cayman Islands, St. Kitts and Nevis, Guernsey, these are well-known offshore tax havens. And of these eight, there were a total of 128,000 of these entities. So it seems to be a very potentially large-scale problem, shall we say?
4: Neil, you write in your story about this the The report grew out of an investigation of Robert Brockman, a, a billionaire software developer. Tell us a bit about him and about his case.
3: Sure, he was a very low profile uh, software mogul. He made his original fortune, selling software to automobile dealerships in the u s and elsewhere uh, so they could run their operations. He then became the original investor in Vista Equity Partners, a private equity firm, which was launched by Robert Smith. Together, they came up with a structure uh, in which the profits, the income from the investments in Vista Equity Partners, would remain offshore. And Vista was hugely successful; has you know expanded greatly, uh, investing in mostly enterprise software companies, which is Brockman's specialty, and. Robert Brockman was indicted in 2020 on allegations, according to the Justice Department, that he hid over $2 billion in income, mostly earned at Vista Equity Partners, uh, and that according to the Wyden report, the report that just came out, he was using this loophole we're referring to where he sets up offshore partnerships and then turns them into financial institutions, Uh, which don't have to be reported back to the IRS. So it seems like what happened here was that the Senate Finance Committee investigators started looking at how could a guy get away with a $2 billion tax fraud for years and years. And when they were doing their investigations, they came upon this so-called Shell Bank loophole. And so it became prominent in the report that they put out uh, this week.
5: Now, the IRS is getting an $80 billion infusion courtesy of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that Democrats just passed. Is that going to give the IRS more ability to crack down on what's happening here?
3: It certainly would seem like it will. And it's really notable that in the Senate report, the Senate investigators talked with IRS officials. And uh, essentially, according to the report, what the IRS said was we don't have the resources to investigate These partnerships, when they come to us and say, you know, we would like these so-called GIN numbers, so essentially what the IRS has done is thrown up its hands, said, we don't have the resources to do the very, you know, heavy lifting to see what's behind these offshore partnerships, so they've just almost automatically, it appears, been granting these numbers, giving this status which involves very little oversight to, as we said well over 100,000 entities uh, in some well-known tax havens.
4: Neil, the IRS has been such a political lightning rod in recent years. Is this something that's kind of destined to become a Republican versus Democratic issue?
3: Well, it certainly has become a Republican versus a Democratic issue already. And uh, it would certainly seem that if the Democrats are you know, true to their word, that what they're trying to do is focus on the real big offenders, then... This Robert Brockman uh, and the allegations against him would certainly seem to be a prime example of how very rich Americans are going offshore in many cases to hide their money and avoid paying taxes. Uh, They also note in this report that, of course, this went on for many years. In addition, it wasn't as if the IRS, through its own investigative work, uncovered this. It was actually uncovered with the help of a whistleblower at Vista Equity Partners and some other cooperating witnesses. Uh, So the report also suggests that the IRS should be strengthening its whistleblower office so that people who are in the know will come to it and be incentivized to do so.
4: That's Bloomberg News reporter Neil Weinberg. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Up next, a U.S. senator says the Constitution shields him from having to testify before a Georgia grand jury investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm
5: Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio.
4: I'm Greg Storr.
5: And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. We're joined now by Georgetown University law professor Josh Chaffetz to talk about Senator Lindsey Graham and his efforts to avoid testifying before the Georgia grand jury that's investigating whether President Trump and his allies interfered with the 2020 election. Josh, can you start off by telling us why investigators want to talk to Senator Graham?
6: Uh, sure. Well, there have been allegations that Graham uh, basically tried to pressure uh, state officials into, as President Trump put it, sort of coming up with the necessary votes to throw Georgia's Electoral College votes to Trump rather than to Biden, who in fact won the state. Uh, so they want to question him as part of their investigation into that sort of broader occurrence.
4: So Senator Graham argues that the two calls he made to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, uh, are protected by the Constitution's speech or debate clause. Can you tell us what the speech or debate clause is and what it was designed to do?
6: Sure. So it's in uh, Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, and it says that members of either chamber of Congress uh, shall not be questioned in any other place for anything that they uh, say in speech or debate. And speech or debate has always been understood to be sort of synecdoche for the wider universe of things that members do as part of their official duties as members of Congress. So um, it includes things that are technically speaking or debating, like voting, or um, participating in committee activities, things like that. Um, and essentially, it was meant to protect members of the legislature uh, from two things. One is Harassment by the other branches. So, you know, criminal proceedings instigated by the executive branch and brought before the judiciary. Uh, and then the second thing is it was meant to uh, protect against harassment from sort of just individual citizens, right? So it was thought that if members uh, had to spend all their time answering lawsuits from citizens, uh, they might not have enough time to actually do the public business. So it was meant to sort of insulate their official activities from both of these things a
5: district court rejected Senator Graham's arguments that this clause protects his clause and then the appeals court came back and put that ruling on hold and sent the case back to the district court for additional argument. Now, do you think there's any merit to what Senator Graham claims here? So, I
6: actually think this is a tough case. So, you know, Graham Graham's argument basically is is twofold. One that he is, you know, a member of the Senate and therefore under the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act, he has a Uh, role in deciding whether or not to certify the the electoral votes from any particular state, including Georgia. And then two, that at the time he was also the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and so actually had jurisdiction over things like Electoral Count Act reform and and issues like that. So his argument is that both of those sort of mean that he had a legitimate legislative interest in this. It is certainly the case that sort of fact-finding by members of Congress is protected under the speech for debate clause. It would be sort of strange to say that members sort of had no right to sort of arm themselves with with facts or no protections when they did so, and the Supreme Court has said in several cases that fact-finding is protected. You know, there is at least a colorable claim here. Now, obviously, what prosecutors are saying is, look, this wasn't about fact-finding, this was about attempting to apply pressure. Uh, and that is also, you know, sort of a, a strong argument, right? If he was, in fact, attempting to apply pressure, that would seem to be outside of his role as a member of Congress. Uh, and he'd be acting in a role as a sort of uh, partisan or perhaps just private citizen, in which case this would fall outside the protections of the speech or debate clause. So I think there are actually sort of legitimate arguments on, on both sides here.
4: So Senator Graham's lawyers say that he's so far he's only a witness in this investigation and hasn't been accused of any wrongdoing does that matter at all in this analysis
6: no it it shouldn't uh so the speech or debate clause protects members against service of process for anything they're doing in their official duty so it protects them against being sort of called unwillingly as witnesses as well as against being prosecuted
4: is there a way for the district court or the appeals court to essentially split the baby here come up with a way in which senator graham maybe has to testify but doesn't have to answer every question
6: the court certainly could do that and i think you know maybe that that's even a, a likely outcome here It's to say, well, you know, if you were asking questions and gathering information, you don't have to talk about that. But if you were actually sort of making declaratory statements or putting pressure, you do have to talk about that. I think that's plausible. I do think that still raises some sort of difficult issues, both of of line drawing, right? How do you exactly distinguish between those two? Because, of course, something can be phrased as a question, but obviously meant to sort of put pressure on someone. Uh, But even beyond the sort of line drawing questions, you know, part of the, the purpose of the speech or debate clause is to be a sort of jurisdictional bar. It's to be, in some sense, a blunt instrument to say, uh, look, we don't want those kinds of fine distinctions to actually have to come before a judge because part of the purpose of this clause is to say these you know, judges are not disinterested parties in separation of powers disputes. They're one of the branches. One of the things we want to protect members against is um, sort of compulsion to, to appear before other governing officials. Um, and so we want to create a sort of strong bar saying, you know, you can't be questioned about what you did. So the finer you try to draw these distinctions, the more you're sort of necessarily going to be uh, uh, involving judges in, in saying, well, this is legislative activity, but that's not. You can be questioned about this, but not about that. And that itself sort of undermines some of the values that the speech or debate clause is meant to protect.
5: You mentioned that this is a hard case, and I was hoping that you could elaborate a little bit more on why it isn't so cut and dry.
3: You know,
6: members do a lot of different things in their capacity as members, right? They, you know, they participate in the crafting of legislation, debating it on the floor, debating in committee, but they also participate in sort of uh, broader oversight. They do constituent services, things like that. It's true that a lot of the um, federal judicial case law on the scope of the speech or debate clause has tried to sort of draw these distinctions between things. So the courts have said, I think wrongly, but what they've said is that things like constituent services or giving press conferences those or talking to the media, those things are actually not covered by the speech or debate clause. But even within the court's, again, in my view, too restrictive understanding of the scope of the clause, they have said that gathering information is within the scope of the speech or debate clause, that attempting to sort of figure out what's going on and bring that information back to your role as a legislator, as an overseer, that that is, in fact, activity protected by the clause. And again, Graham is, is arguing that that's exactly what he was doing. And you know, to the extent that he was asking for information, that's perfectly plausible, because, again, he did have a role you know, in the question of whether or not electoral votes from Georgia should be certified, et cetera. Just to be clear, none of this turns on the question of whether Graham was sort of a good actor. I think there's no reasonable factual question here, right? I think that Georgia clearly voted for Biden, uh, and I think Graham was, was probably acting in bad faith here. But, you know, legal privileges often operate to protect people who are acting in bad faith or operate to protect bad actors, right? Everything from attorney-client privilege to priest-penitent privilege, right? They shield information that might be evidence of bad acting on someone's part, and yet we accept those privileges because we think they serve a broader social purpose. Speech-or-debate clause does something similar. And so I think, even though I don't think Graham was sort of um, acting in the public interest here, I think there is an argument that the speech or debate clause serves a broader public purpose and therefore should potentially shield his behavior in this case.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Coming up next, we continue our conversation with Georgetown University Law Professor Josh Chaffetz. I'm Greg Storr.
5: And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio.
4: I'm Greg Storr.
5: And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. We've been talking with Georgetown University law professor Josh Chaffetz. Josh, can you tell us or do you know of any instances where the speech and debate clause has protected a sitting member of Congress from having to testify before a grand jury?
6: Um, So, yes, there have been a number of cases where it has served that function. I think in some ways perhaps the most relevant one here might be a 1967 case, Dombrowski versus Eastland, Supreme Court case, where Senator Eastland was held to be immune from suit and therefore didn't have to testify as a result of investigations that his committee had been carrying out that were alleged to violate the civil rights of various private citizens. The clause is also one of the things that operates in the shadows, right? There are plenty of situations in which someone either isn't called to testify or there isn't even sort of a thought of bringing them in to testify because they're members.
4: Has the clause ever made its way up to the Supreme Court? And regardless, is there a sense as to if this were a dispute that made it up to this Supreme Court, what the court might think of the speech or debate clause?
6: Sure. So the, the clause is made up to the Supreme Court a number of times in various contexts. And what the court has done in a somewhat consistent way is try to both draw a distinction between things that it considers truly legislative activity on the one hand and things that it considers sort of ancillary to the congressional job on the other, and then give really strong protection to the things that it considers sort of truly central. So in some sense, the the sort of modern central case for this is the Gravel case. Uh, So Senator Mike Gravel read much of the Pentagon Papers into a Senate subcommittee hearing, And then there was a subsequent grand jury investigation. There were sort of two questions uh, in that grand jury. There were subpoenas issued to one of Gravel's aides, Leonard Rodberg, um, and to a private publisher with whom Gravel tried to publish his excerpts from the Pentagon Papers. And Gravel moved to quash those subpoenas. And what the court said was uh, sort of split the baby. It said that Rodberg was absolutely immune because he was, as the court said, Gravel's alter ego. So even staff members could get the protection of the speech or debate clause if what they were doing was sort of central to, in this case, committee work. But they said the arrangement to publish the Pentagon Papers was, uh, didn't receive any protection at all because the court said communication with the public actually isn't sort of core to what members do. And then sort of subsequent cases, both in the Supreme Court and in the Federal Courts of Appeals, have, have sort of continued along this line, saying communication with the public, sometimes even communication with other agencies of the federal government or constituent services, those things that the courts have said are not core legislative behavior and therefore don't get speech or debate privilege, whereas things done on the floor, things done in committee are core legislative behavior and do. As to what this court would do, I don't see any reason in particular to think it would sort of deviate from that sort of general distinction. That said, I think this court has perhaps wisely stayed very far away from any cases really dealing with the 2020 election. And I can't imagine it would want to take this case.
5: You mentioned that this is a clause that operates in the shadows. Can you tell us when does it most often come into play and is it used to protect sitting members of Congress?
6: Sure. So, for example, one good example, sort of following up on the Gravel case of of when it comes into play, is that members, not frequently, but on occasion, have either revealed classified information or gotten awfully close to the line of revealing classified information on the floor. So this was the case when Gravel read the Pentagon Papers into the record, but it was also the case a House member named Henry Gonzalez from Texas revealed classified information um, about the sort of run-up to the First Iraq War on the floor of the House, More recently, Senators Wyden, Udall, and Rockefeller all talked about sort of the operation of the Patriot Act at a level of specificity that was at least coming close to the line of revealing classified information on the floor. And they were all able to do that precisely because they knew they couldn't be prosecuted for it. And I would say that's a good thing. Right. That is to say, um, it basically says to the executive branch, you know, classification is how you decide how to handle information. But that information doesn't belong to the executive. It belongs to the American people. Members of Congress represent the people as well. And so we sort of can make our own determinations about what the American people ought to know. It's an, it's an important sort of executive checking function. And it precisely doesn't make it into the court because everyone agrees that that behavior is protected by the speech the debate clause.
4: Stepping back for a second, this investigation, what do you see coming from it? Is there, is there real legal risk to former President Trump here?
6: Oof, I mean, that's a little bit outside my ken as someone who, who really doesn't know much about Georgia criminal law here. But, uh, you know, I think what we can certainly say is that something we've known ever since the recording of this phone call was released by Raffensperger is that, you know, there was some really inappropriate pressure put on Georgia officials here by Trump and by those working on his behalf. Um, and that had that pressure had the potential to do tremendous damage to our political and constitutional system. Um, and to my mind, that's sort of the more important conclusion than whether any individual might have violated any particular criminal structure.
5: That's Georgetown University Law Professor Josh Chaffetz. Thanks for being with us. Up next, we talk with Georgia State University Law Professor Eric Segal about who could potentially challenge President Trump's student loan forgiveness package. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. I'm Lydia Wheeler.
4: And I'm Greg Storr.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg
4: Radio.
5: I'm Lydia Wheeler,
4: and I'm Greg Store. We're in for June Grasso. On Wednesday, President Joe Biden unveiled a sweeping student debt relief package that cancels as much as twenty thousand dollars in debt for some people. Joining us now is Georgia State University College of Law Professor Eric Siegel to talk about whether this student debt relief plan could face legal challenges. Eric, thanks so much for being on with us. Let's just first start. Um, do you think it's likely that we will see some sort of lawsuit challenging this package?
2: Well, these days, anytime the executive branch does anything to anybody about anything, there's usually a lawsuit. So I suspect we will see uh, plenty of lawsuits
6: over
5: You know, we know that a party has to be injured by the plan in some way in order to have what's known as standing to bring a legal challenge. But can you tell us who
2: might be able to do that? Right. So just backing up a minute, the Supreme Court has said that for a plaintiff to have standing in any federal court, uh, the plaintiff has to have an injury that was caused by the defendant that can be redressed by the court. Those are constitutional factors. There's these other kind of prudential factors, one of which is that the plaintiff has to be in the zone of interest of the statute that he's claiming is being violated and is harming him. So in this case, I, I don't think anyone would really have standing except for those people those banks that service the loans if they can show they lost money because of this change in policy then certainly losing money is the most traditional injury and they would meet the constitutional requirements these loan services however I don't think they would have standing under this so-called zone of interest test because there's nothing in any of the student loan statutes or regulations that are meant to protect the people who service the loans this statutory scheme and regulatory scheme is for students and their families to help provide financial assistance for education, and they're the ones this statute is supposed to protect. Now, sorry, but one more thing. Having said all of that, as I've said and written many times, including about the enrollments case in the L.A. Times and other places, I like to use this expression, standing is what standing does. And and what I mean by that is courts manipulate this doctrine, all courts, including, of course, the Supreme Court. If they want to hear the case, they will likely find a way to grant standing. And if they don't want to hear the case, they'll find a way not to grant standing. Now, some cases are more challenging than others. I will yep. tell you who doesn't have standing here. People who paid back all their student loans in the past and are angry, I understand that, but they won't have any legal standing. And also, it's, you know, this doesn't apply to everybody. I think you have to make less than $125,000 a year uh, if you're single or two fifty if you're married, filing jointly, to get this reduction in your loan. If we fall outside of that, I don't think they would have standing. But the people who are losing money servicing the loan have the best chance.
4: Let's circle back to them in a second. I want to ask you about an entity that you did not mention in there, which are states. And I ask this because it seems like every other Supreme Court case these days is something like Texas versus Biden. Is there any argument that a state might be able to challenge it, much like they've been challenging, say, President Biden's immigration decisions?
2: As far as I know, states have no financial interest in any way, shape, or form in this, in this statutory scheme. So, no, I wouldn't think so. Now, having said that, and I hope you don't mind this little quip, there's a judge in Texas named Reed O'Connor who will just strike down any Democrat president's plans. If they forum shop to him, who knows what would happen? And there may be a few other judges like that as well. It used to be the case that states very rarely had standing, And the Supreme Court has loosened that a little bit. But I don't see what interest a state would have here. They're not directly involved in any of the monetary transactions, to the best of my knowledge.
5: How soon are we likely to see legal challenges stemming from this plan? And are these disputes likely to delay the student debt relief that these people have been promised?
2: Well, again, times have changed so much. Ten years ago, I would have said there's no way there's going to be an injunction in these cases. It's just not that kind of case. But in recent years, we've seen other instances where district courts and, and court of appeals did put injunctions on federal laws in ways we haven't seen in the past. And that's not a partisan statement. That's happened to both sides. So you never know these days. But I would think this won't get to court for a while. And when it gets to court, I don't think there'll be an injunction until a final, if there's injunction at all, into a final trial and hearing.
4: Let me ask you about the prospect that you mentioned about servicers, loan servicers, uh, suing to challenge here. Have you seen any indication that there is a servicer out there who might be motivated to challenge this? You mentioned that there might be some financial impact, but surely if there is a lawsuit here, it's going to be about ideology as much as about money.
2: Right. I don't think it would be very hard for groups who are devoted to dismantling the administrative state, and both of you know there are a lot of groups that want to do that in general, they'll be able to find a servicer somewhere who says, you know, I have X number of loans, and I make X amount of money off of them, and now I'm going to have X minus, that amount of money. But we shouldn't criticize that, because, you know, that's how civil rights groups brought lawsuits that eventually led to to Brown versus Board of Education. That's an equally true thing for both sides, that in these kinds of ideological battles, public interest groups normally fund the lawsuits, they find plaintiffs who would have standing, and that's something we shouldn't criticize, you know, unless we want a much weaker judiciary, because this is how this is normally done. Now, I, I will also say 20 years ago, the Federalist Society would not have thought this was the kind of lawsuit people should bring but they've changed their minds on that. And so there are a lot of groups who are very vested in limiting the amount of deference Congress can give to the executive branch. That's the kind of lawsuit this would be. It would be that the secretary didn't have the authority that a secretary says uh, they have, or if Congress wants to delegate this power, it has to do so through you know a much clearer statute because this was called a, a major question. All of that stuff is fairly new, so it's hard to say. But I'm sure there are plaintiffs out there to be gotten by ideological groups who want to further limit the administrative state.
5: Is it possible that we could see some people get the student debt relief and then a court step in and issue some nationwide injunction and then others don't get it? Like, could we yeah. see that happen?
2: Well, I, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I would assume that the powers that be that want to challenge this will organize in a way where they'll likely bring one lawsuit in one favorable place. Anybody who is benefited by this wouldn't have standing to bring the suit. So I don't know. Would they bring several suits in several favorable jurisdictions? Maybe. It's too early to tell. I'm getting the sense from social media there are a lot of people who really don't like what's happening. And that being the case, I'm sure you can anticipate a lawsuit, but that's just my little part of the world.
4: Eric, let me ask you a bit about the merits you alluded to, the nature of the claim that it would be that the education department is overstepping its authority. There is a law called the HEROES Act, the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, that – allows for some debt reduction in cases like with the pandemic. With this Supreme Court, uh, doesn't that feel like a pretty strong claim that if it were to get to the Supreme Court on the merits, the court would be fairly receptive to?
2: Any claim these days that the executive branch is exceeding the authority given to it by Congress, or that Congress can't give the authority at all, I think might find a warm welcome at the Supreme Court. Then again, things change. You know, it would, t- it would take a long time to get there unless the court stepped in early. On this kind of case, I really can't imagine the court would step in early. So we're several years away from this case getting to the Supreme Court. Who knows what will change between now and then. But you're right, Greg. Regardless of what I think about the merits or what you think about the merits or Lydia thinks about the merits, regardless of all of that, the court is going to be receptive. It's just the case, for better or for worse. I'm not saying who's right, who's wrong that many of the conservative judges appointed by Donald Trump have a very anti-regulatory stance. And that being the case, I would bet on the person challenging the law or or regulation, not the government. And I would editorialize and say, as a con law professor, I think that's very sad. I think that our government is just too big for Congress to regulate in detail. But it doesn't matter what Siegel thinks. You are right. The Supreme Court is likely to be receptive to these kinds of
6: arguments.
5: You mentioned that on Twitter, you're seeing a lot of chatter about how people really don't like what's happening here. Can you talk about what you're seeing and why that is? I mean, it seems to me like people would be excited that, you know, some of their debt is going to be relieved, um, you know, heavy student
2: loans. Well, those people are happy. (laughs) I think there are people (laughs) who have paid their student loans back in full, who feel a little bit cheated, although I suspect the vast majority of those people understand. I think there are a lot of people who think this is just too much for the secretary to do given the statute that was passed and the regulations that are being issued. But I also, and I'm sorry, I won't be able to comment on this. What I am seeing though are a lot of people claiming this is really bad for the economy. It's not really what is needed. Most of the benefits are going to go to people who don't need them as, you know, that badly and all kinds of economic arguments that I'm seeing that I just don't have the skills or the background to evaluate.
4: Eric, there was this memo issued by the Justice Department saying that the Education Department has the power to do this. Were you surprised that memo did not, as I read it, grapple at all with those recent Supreme Court decisions from this last term saying that the Biden administration overstepped its authority with the eviction moratorium and the mandate, the vaccine mandate for for workers? Were you surprised they didn't try to address those?
2: Uh, Can I answer that with a general comment about the Office of Legal Counsel, who I worked with very closely when I worked with the first Bush administration? This has been true since at least 1980, if if not forever. The Office of Legal Counsel is going to write a memo that gets to the result that the president wants. Now, that wasn't always the case, and, and it hasn't always been the case over the last 40, 50 years, but it's mostly the case. I did take a look at that memo. Uh, I don't remember the date, so I'd have to go back and look at the date of it. But assuming it's in the last few months, yes. Normally, an OLC memo should should canvas the best arguments against what the president is trying to do and then make them, you know, go away. I, I am a little surprised, Greg, just like you are.
4: Okay. Thanks so much for joining us, Eric Siegel, professor at Georgia State University College of Law. That does it for this episode of Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storr.
5: And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg.